My first round of grades at school turned out to be pretty good, and so did my second. Over the course of my freshman and sophomore years, I began to build the same kind of confidence I had at Bryn Mawr. With each little accomplishment, with every high school screw-up I managed to avoid, my doubts slowly took leave. I liked most of my teachers. I wasn't afraid to raise my hand in class. At Whitney Young, it was safe to be smart. The assumption was that everyone was working toward college, which meant that you never hid your intelligence for fear of someone saying, you talk like a white girl. I loved any subject that involved writing and labored through pre-calc. I was a half-decent French student. I had peers who were always a step or two ahead of me, whose achievements seemed effortless, but I tried not to let that get to me. I was beginning to understand that if I put in extra hours of studying, I could often close the gap. I wasn't a straight-A student, but I was always trying, and there were semesters when I got close. Craig, meanwhile, had enrolled at Princeton University, vacating his back porch room on Euclid Avenue, leaving a six-foot-six, 200-pound gap in our daily lives. Our fridge was considerably less loaded with meat and milk, the phone line no longer tied up by girls calling to chat him up. He'd been recruited by big universities offering scholarships and what amounted to a celebrity existence playing basketball. But with my parents' encouragement, he'd chosen Princeton, which cost more but, as they saw it, promised more as well. My father burst with pride when Craig became a starter as a sophomore on Princeton's basketball team, wobbly on his feet and using two canes to walk. He still relished a long drive. He traded in his old Buick for a new Buick, another 225, this one a shimmering deep maroon. When he could get the time off from his job at the filtration plant, He'd drive 12 hours across Indiana, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey to catch one of Craig's games. By nature of my long commute to Whitney Young, I saw less of my parents, and looking back at it, I guessed that it was a lonely time for them, or at least required some adjustment. I was now gone more than I was home. Tired of standing through the 90-minute bus ride to school, Terry Johnson and I had figured out a kind of trick which involved leaving our houses 15 minutes earlier in the morning and catching a bus that was headed in the opposite direction from school. We rode a few stops south to a less busy neighborhood, then jumped out, crossed the street, and hailed our regular northbound bus, which was reliably emptier than it would be at 75th, where we normally boarded. Pleased by our own cleverness, we'd smugly claim a seat and then talk or study the whole way to school. In the evenings, I dragged myself back through the door around six or seven o'clock in time for a quick dinner and a chance to talk to my parents about whatever had gone on that day. But once the dishes had been washed, I disappeared into homework, often taking my books downstairs to the encyclopedia nook off the stairwell next to Robbie and Terry's apartment for privacy and quiet. My parents never once spoke of the stress of having to pay for college, but I knew enough to appreciate that it was there. When my French teacher announced that she'd be leading an optional class trip to Paris over one of our breaks for those who could come up with the money to do it, 
I didn't even bother to raise the issue at home. This was the difference between me and the Jack and Jill kids, many of whom were now my close friends. I had a loving and orderly home, bus fare to get me across town to school, and a hot meal to come home to at night. Beyond that, I wasn't going to ask my parents for a thing. Yet one evening, my parents sat me down looking puzzled. My mother had learned about the France trip through Terry Johnson's mom. Why didn't you tell us, she said. Because it's too much money. That's actually not for you to decide, Mish, my dad said gently, almost offended. And how are we supposed to decide if we don't even know about it? I looked at them both, unsure of what to say. My mother glanced at me, her eyes soft. My father had changed out of his work uniform and into a clean white shirt. They were in their early 40s then, married nearly 20 years. Neither one of them had ever vacationed in Europe. They never took beach trips or went out to dinner. They didn't own a house. We were their investment, me and Craig. Everything went into us. A few months later, I boarded a flight to Paris with my teacher and a dozen or so of my classmates from Whitney Young. We would stay in a hostel, tour the Louvre and the Eiffel Tower. We'd buy crepes à fromage from stands on the street and walk along the banks of the Seine. We'd speak French like a bunch of high school kids from Chicago, but we'd at least speak French. As the plane pulled away from its gate that day, I looked out my window and back at the airport, knowing that my mother stood somewhere behind its black glass windows, dressed in her winter coat and waving me on. I remember the jet engines firing shockingly loud. And then we were rattling down the runway and beginning to tilt upward as the acceleration seized my chest and pressed me backward into my seat for that strange, in-between half-moment that comes before finally you feel lifted. In the manner of all high schoolers everywhere, my friends and I liked to loiter. We loitered boisterously, and we loitered in public. On days when school got out early or when homework was light, we flocked from Whitney Young to downtown Chicago, landing in the eight-story mall at Water Tower Place. Once there, we rode the escalators up and down, spent our money on gourmet popcorn from Garrett's, and commandeered tables at McDonald's for more hours than was reasonable, given how little food we ordered. We browsed the designer jeans and the purses at Marshall Fields, often surreptitiously tailed by security guards who didn't like the look of us. Sometimes we went to a movie. We were happy, happy with our freedom, happy with one another, happy with the way the city seemed to glitter more on days when we weren't thinking about school. We were city kids learning how to range. I spent a lot of my time with a classmate named Santita Jackson, who in the mornings boarded the Jeffrey bus a few stops after I did, and who became one of my best friends in high school. Santita had beautiful dark eyes, full cheeks, and the bearing of a wise woman, even at 16. At school, she was one of those kids who signed up for every AP class available and seemed to ace them all. She wore skirts when everyone else wore jeans and had a singing voice so clear and powerful 
that she'd end up touring years later as a backup singer for Roberta Flack. She was also deep. It's what I loved most about Santita. Like me, she could be frivolous and goofy when we were with a larger group, but on our own, we'd get ponderous and intense. Two girl philosophers together trying to sort out life's issues, big and small. We passed hours sprawled on the floor of Santita's room on the second floor of her family's white Tudor house in Jackson Park Highlands, a more affluent section of South Shore, talking about things that irked us and where our lives were headed and what we did and didn't understand about the world. As a friend, she was a good listener and insightful, and I tried to be the same. Santita's father was famous. This was the primary impossible-to-get-around fact of her life. She was the eldest child of the Reverend Jesse Jackson, the firebrand Baptist preacher and increasingly powerful political leader. Jackson had worked closely with Martin Luther King Jr. and risen to national prominence himself in the early 1970s as the founder of a political organization called Operation Push, which advocated for the rights of underserved African Americans. By the time we were in high school, he'd become an outright celebrity, charismatic, well-connected, and constantly on the move. He toured the country, mesmerizing crowds with thundering calls for black people to shake off the undermining ghetto stereotypes and claim their long-denied political power. He preached a message of relentless, let's-do-this self-empowerment. Down with dope, up with hope, he'd call to his audiences. He had school kids sign pledges to turn off the TV and devote two hours to their homework each night. He made parents promise to stay involved. He pushed back against the feelings of failure that permeated so many African-American communities, urging people to quit with the self-pity and take charge of their own destiny. Nobody but nobody, he'd yell, is too poor to turn off the TV two hours a night. Hanging around Santita's house could be exciting. The place was roomy and a little chaotic, home to the family's five children, and stuffed with heavy Victorian furniture and antique glassware that Santita's mom, Jacqueline, liked to collect. Mrs. Jackson, as I called her, had an expansive spirit and a big laugh. She wore colorful, billowy clothes and served meals at a massive table in the dining room, hosting anyone who turned up, mostly people who belonged to what she called the movement. This included business leaders, politicians, and poets, plus a coterie of famous people from singers to athletes. When Reverend Jackson was at home, a different energy pulsed through the house. Routines were cast aside. Dinner conversations lasted late into the night. Advisors came and went. Plans were always being made. Unlike in my apartment on Euclid, where life ran at an orderly and predictable pace, where my parents' concerns rarely extended beyond keeping our family happy and on track for success, the Jacksons seemed caught in something larger, messier, and seemingly more impactful. Their engagement was outward. Their community was big. Their mission, important. Santita and her siblings were being raised to be politically active. They knew how and what to boycott. They marched for their father's causes. 
They went on his work trips, visiting places like Israel and Cuba, New York and Atlanta. They stood on stages in front of big crowds and were learning to absorb the anxiety and controversy that came with having a father, maybe especially a black father, in public life. Reverend Jackson had bodyguards, large silent men who traveled with him. At the time, it only half registered with me that there had been threats against his life. Santita adored her father and was proud of his work, but she was also trying to live her own life. She and I were all for strengthening the character of black youth across America, but we also needed rather desperately to get to Water Tower Place before the K-Swiss sneaker sale ended. We often found ourselves looking for rides or to borrow a car because I lived in a one-car family with two working parents. The odds were usually better at the Jackson's house, where Mrs. Jackson had both a wooden-paneled station wagon and a little sports car. Sometimes we'd hitch rides with the various staff members or visitors who buzzed in and out. What we sacrificed was control. This would become one of my early unwitting lessons about life and politics. Schedules and plans never seemed to stick. Even standing on the far edge of the vortex, you still felt it spin. Santita and I were often stuck waiting out some delay that related to her father. A meeting that was running long or a plane that was still circling the airport or detouring through a series of last-minute stops. We'd think we were getting a ride home from school or going to the mall, but instead we'd end up at a political rally on the west side or stranded for hours at the Operation Push headquarters in Hyde Park. One day, we found ourselves marching with a crowd of Jesse Jackson supporters in the Bud Billiken Day Parade, the parade named for a fictional character from a long-ago newspaper column, is one of the South Side's grandest traditions, held every August, an extravaganza of marching bands and floats that runs for almost two miles along Martin Luther King Jr. Drive, through the heart of the African-American neighborhood that was once referred to as the Black Belt, but was later rechristened Bronzeville. The Bud Billiken Day Parade had been going on since 1929 and was all about African-American pride. If you were any sort of community leader or politician, it was, and still is to this day, more or less mandatory that you show up and walk the route. I didn't know it at the time, but the vortex around Santita's father was starting to spin faster. Jesse Jackson was a few years from formally launching a run to be president of the United States, which means he was likely beginning to actively consider the idea during the time we were in high school. Money had to be raised. Connections needed to be made. Running for president, I understand now, is an all-consuming, full-body effort for every person involved. And good campaigns tend to involve a stage-setting, groundwork-laying preamble which can add whole years to the effort. Setting his sights on the 1984 election, Jesse Jackson would become the second African-American ever to run a serious national campaign for the presidency after Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm's unsuccessful run in 1972. My guess is that at least some of this was on his mind at the time of the parade. What I knew was that I personally didn't love the feeling of being out there, 
thrust under a baking sun, amid balloons and bullhorns, amid trombones and throngs of cheering people. The fanfare was fun and even intoxicating, but there was something about it, and about politics in general, that made me queasy. For one thing, I was someone who liked things to be neat and planned in advance, and from what I could tell, there seemed to be nothing especially neat about life in politics. The parade had not been part of my plan. As I remember it, Santita and I hadn't intended on joining at all. We'd been conscripted at the last minute, maybe by her mother or father, or maybe someone else in the movement who'd caught us before we could follow through on whatever ideas we'd had for ourselves that day. But I loved Santita dearly, and I was also a polite kid who, for the most part, went along with what adults told me to do. And so I'd done it. I'd plunged myself deep into the hot, spinning noisiness of the Bud Billiken Day Parade, I arrived home at Euclid Avenue that evening to find my mother laughing. I just saw you on TV, she said. She'd been watching the news and spotted me marching alongside Santita, waving and smiling and going along. What made her laugh, I'd guess, is that she also picked up on the queasiness, the fact that maybe I'd been caught up in something I'd rather not do. When it came time to look at colleges, Santita and I both were interested in schools on the East Coast. She went to check out Harvard, but was disheartened when an admissions officer pointedly harassed her about her father's politics, when all she wanted was to be taken on her own terms. I spent a weekend visiting Craig at Princeton, where he seemed to have slipped into a productive rhythm of playing basketball, taking classes, and hanging out at a campus center designed for minority students. The campus was large and pretty, an Ivy League school covered with ivy, and Craig's friends seemed nice enough. I didn't overthink it from there. No one in my immediate family had much in the way of direct experience with college, so there was little, anyway, to debate or explore. As had always been the case, I figured that whatever Craig liked, I would like to, and whatever he could accomplish, I could as well. And with that, Princeton became my top choice for school. Early in my senior year at Whitney Young, I went for an obligatory first appointment with the school college counselor to whom I'd been assigned. I can't tell you much about the counselor because I deliberately and almost instantly blotted this experience out. I don't remember her age or race or how she happened to look at me that day when I turned up in her office doorway, full of pride at the fact that I was on track to graduate in the top 10% of my class at Whitney Young, that I'd been elected treasurer of the senior class, made the National Honor Society, and managed to vanquish pretty much every doubt I'd arrived with as a nervous ninth grader. I don't remember whether she inspected my transcript before or after I announced my interest in joining my brother at Princeton the following fall. It's possible, in fact, that during our short meeting, the college counselor said things to me that might have been positive and helpful, but I recall none of it. Because rightly or wrongly, I got stuck on one single sentence the woman uttered. I'm not sure, she said, giving me a perfunctory, patronizing smile. 
that you're Princeton material. Her judgment was as swift as it was dismissive, probably based on a quick glance calculus involving my grades and test scores. It was some version, I imagine, of what this woman did all day long with practice efficiency, telling seniors where they did and didn't belong. I'm sure she figured she was only being realistic. I doubt that she gave our conversation another thought. But as I've said, failure is a feeling long before it's an actual result. And for me, it felt like that's exactly what she was planting a suggestion of failure long before I'd even tried to succeed. She was telling me to lower my sights, which was the absolute reverse of every last thing my parents had ever told me. Had I decided to believe her, her pronouncement would have toppled my confidence all over again, reviving the old thrum of not enough, not enough. But three years of keeping up with the ambitious kids at Winneong had taught me that I was something more. I wasn't going to let one person's opinion dislodge everything I thought I knew about myself. Instead, I switched my method without changing my goal. I would apply to Princeton and a scattershot selection of other schools, but without any more input from the college counselor. Instead, I sought help from someone who actually knew me. Mr. Smith, my assistant principal and neighbor, had seen my strengths as a student and furthermore trusted me with his own kids. He agreed to write me a recommendation letter. I've been lucky enough now in my life to meet all sorts of extraordinary and accomplished people, world leaders, inventors, musicians, astronauts, athletes, professors, entrepreneurs, artists and writers, pioneering doctors and researchers. Some, though not enough, of them are women. Some, though not enough, are black or of color. Some were born poor or have lived lives that to many of us would appear to have been unfairly heaped with adversity. And yet, still, they seem to operate as if they've had every advantage in the world. What I've learned is this. All of them have had doubters. Some continue to have roaring stadium-sized collections of critics and naysayers who will shout, I told you so, at every little misstep or mistake. The noise doesn't go away, but the most successful people I know have figured out how to live with it, to lean on the people who believe in them and to push onward with their goals. That day, I left the college counselor's office at Whitney Young. I was fuming, my ego bruised more than anything. My only thought in that moment was, I'll show you. But then I settled down and got back to work. I never thought getting into college would be easy, but I was learning to focus and have faith in my own story. I tried to tell the whole thing in my college essay. Rather than pretending that I was madly intellectual and thought I'd fit right in inside the ivy-strewn walls of Princeton, I wrote about my father's MS and my family's lack of experience with higher education. I owned the fact that I was reaching. Given my background, 
reaching was really all I could do. And ultimately, I suppose I did show that college counselor because six or seven months later, a letter arrived in our mailbox on Euclid Avenue offering me admission to Princeton. My parents and I celebrated that night by having pizza delivered from Italian Fiesta. I called Craig and shouted the good news. The next day, I knocked on Mr. Smith's door to tell him about my acceptance, thanking him for his help. I never did stop in on the college counselor to tell her she'd been wrong, that I was Princeton material after all. It would have done nothing for either of us. And in the end, I hadn't needed to show her anything. I was only showing myself. Six. My dad drove me to Princeton in the summer of 1981, across the flat highways connecting Illinois to New Jersey. But it was more than a simple father-daughter road trip. My boyfriend, David, came along for the ride. I'd been invited to attend a special three-week summer orientation program meant to close a preparation gap, giving certain incoming freshmen extra time and help settling into college. It was unclear exactly how we were identified, what part of our admissions applications had tipped the university off to the idea that we might benefit from lessons on how to read a syllabus or advanced practice navigating the pathways between campus buildings. But Craig had done it two years earlier, and it seemed like an opportunity. So I packed up my stuff and said goodbye to my mom, neither of us teary or sentimental, and climbed into the car. My eagerness to leave town was fueled in part by the fact I'd spent the last couple of months working an assembly line job, operating what was basically an industrial-sized glue gun at a small bookbinding factory in downtown Chicago, a soul-killing routine that went for eight hours a day, five days a week, and served as possibly the single most reinforcing reminder that going to college was a good idea. David's mom worked at the bookbindery and helped get the two of us jobs there. We'd worked shoulder to shoulder all summer, which made the whole endeavor more palatable. David was smart and gentle, a tall, good-looking guy who was two years older than I was. He'd first befriended Craig on the neighborhood basketball court in Rosenblum Park a few years earlier, joining pickup games when he came to visit relatives who lived on Euclid Parkway. Eventually, he started hanging around with me, during the school year, David went away to college out of state, which conveniently kept him from being any sort of distraction from my studies. During holiday breaks and over the summer, though, he came home to stay with his mom on the far southwest side of the city and drove over almost every day to pick me up in his car. David was easygoing and also more of an adult than any boyfriend I'd had. He sat on the couch and watched ball games with my father. He joked around with Craig and made polite conversation with Mom. We went on real dates, going out for what we considered upscale dinners at Red Lobster and to the movies. We fooled around and smoked pot in his car. By day at the bookbindery, we glue-gunned our way into a companionable oblivion 
wisecracking until there was nothing left to say. Neither of us was particularly invested in the job, beyond trying to save up money for school. I'd be leaving town soon anyway and had little intention of ever coming back to the bookbinding plant. In a sense, I was already halfway departed, my mind flown off in the direction of Princeton. Which is to say that on the early August evening, when our father-daughter-boyfriend trio finally pulled off Route 1 and turned onto the wide leafy avenue leading to campus, I was fully ready to get on with things. I was ready to cart my two suitcases into the summer session dorm, ready to pump the hands of the other kids who'd come, minority and low-income students primarily, with a few athletes mixed in. I was ready to taste the dining hall food, memorize the campus map, and conquer whatever syllabi they wanted to throw my way. I was there. I had landed. I was 17 years old, and my life was underway. There was only one problem, and that was David, who as soon as we crossed the state line from Pennsylvania, had begun to look a little doleful. As we wrestled my luggage out of the back of my dad's car, I could tell he was feeling lonely already. We'd been dating for over a year. We'd professed love, but it was love in the context of Euclid Avenue and Red Lobster and the basketball courts at Rosenbloom Park. It was love in the context of the place I'd just left. While my father took his customary extra minute to get out of the driver's seat and steady himself on his canes, David and I stood wordlessly in the dusk, surveying the immaculate diamond of green lawn outside my stone fortress of a dorm. It was hitting us both, I assumed, that there were perhaps important things we hadn't discussed that we had perhaps divergent views on whether this was a temporary farewell or an outright geographically induced breakup. Were we going to visit, write love letters? How hard were we going to work at this? David held my hand in an earnest way. It was confusing. I knew what I wanted but couldn't find the words. I hoped that someday my feelings for a man would knock me sideways that I'd get swept into the upending tsunami-like rush that seemed to power all the best love stories. My parents had fallen in love as teenagers. My dad took my mother to her high school prom, even. I knew that teenage affairs were sometimes real and lasting. I wanted to believe that there was a guy who'd materialize and become everything to me, who'd be sexy and solid, and whose effect would be so immediate and deep that I'd be willing to rearrange my priorities. It just wasn't the guy standing in front of me right now. My father finally broke the silence between me and David, saying that it was time for us to get my stuff up to the dorm. He'd booked a motel room in town for the two of them. They planned to take off the next day, headed back to Chicago. In the parking lot, I hugged my father tight, his arms had always been strong from his youthful devotion to boxing and swimming and were now further maintained by the effort required to move around by cane. Be good, Mish, he said, releasing me, his face betraying no emotion other than pride. He then got into the car, kindly giving me and David some privacy. 
we stood together on the pavement, both of us sheepish and stalling. My heart lurched with affection as he leaned in to kiss me. This part always felt good. And yet I knew, I knew that while I had my arms around a good-hearted Chicago guy who genuinely cared about me, there was also just beyond us a lit path leading out of the parking lot and up a slight hill toward the quad, which went in a matter of minutes become my new context, my new world. I was nervous about living away from home for the first time, about leaving the only life I'd ever known. But some part of me understood it was better to make a clean, quick break and not hold on to anything. The next day, David would call me at my dorm, asking if we could meet up for a quick meal or a final walk around town before he left. And I would mumble something about how busy I was already at school, how I didn't think it would work. Our goodbye that night was for real and forever. I probably should have said it directly in the moment, but I chickened out, knowing it would hurt, both to say and to hear. Instead, I just let him go. Turned out there were a lot of things I had yet to learn about life, or at least life on the Princeton campus in the early 1980s. After I spent several energizing weeks as a summer student, surrounded by a few dozen other kids who seemed both accessible and familiar to me, the fall semester officially began, opening the floodgates to the student population at large. I moved my belongings into a new dorm room, a one-room triple in Pine Hall, and then watched through my third-floor window as several thousand mostly white students poured onto campus, carting stereos and duvet sets and racks of clothes. Some kids arrived in limos. One girl brought two limos, stretch limos, to accommodate all her stuff. Princeton was extremely white and very male. There was no avoiding the facts. Men on campus outnumbered women almost two to one. Black students made up less than 9% of my freshman class. If during the orientation program we'd begun to feel some ownership of the space, we were now a glaring anomaly, poppy seeds in a bowl of rice. While Whitney Young had been somewhat diverse, I'd never been part of a predominantly white community before. I'd never stood out in a crowd or classroom because of the color of my skin. It was jarring and uncomfortable, at least at first, like being dropped into a strange new terrarium, a habitat that hadn't been built for me. As with anything, though, you learn to adapt. Some of the adjustment was easy, a relief almost. For one thing, nobody seemed much concerned about crime. Students left their rooms unlocked, their bikes casually kickstanded outside buildings, their gold earrings unattended on the sink in the dorm bathrooms. Their trust in the world seemed infinite, their forward progress in it entirely assured. For me, it was something to get used to. I'd spent years quietly guarding my possessions on the bus ride to and from Whitney Young, Walking home to Euclid Avenue in the evenings, I carried my house key wedged between my two knuckles and pointed outward in case I needed to defend myself. At Princeton, it seemed the only thing I needed to be vigilant about was my studies. 
everything otherwise was designed to accommodate our well-being as students. The dining hall served five different kinds of breakfast. There were enormous spreading oak trees to sit under and open lawns where we could throw frisbees to relieve our stress. The main library was like an old-world cathedral with high ceilings and glossy hardwood tables where we could lay out our textbooks and study in silence. We were protected, cocooned, catered to. A lot of kids, I was coming to realize, had never in their lifetimes known anything different. Attached to all of this was a new vocabulary, one I needed to master. What was a precept? What was a reading period? Nobody had explained to me the meaning of extra-long bedsheets on the school packing list, which meant that I bought myself two short bedsheets and would thus spend my freshman year sleeping with my feet resting on the exposed plastic of the dorm mattress. There was an especially distinct learning curve when it came to understanding sports. I'd been raised on the bedrock of football, basketball, and baseball, but it turned out that East Coast prep schoolers did more. Lacrosse was a thing. Field hockey was a thing. Squash even was a thing. For a kid from the South Side, it could be a little dizzying. You row crew, what does that mean? I had only one advantage, the same one I'd had when starting kindergarten. I was still Craig Robinson's little sister. Craig was now a junior and a top player on the varsity basketball team. He was, as he'd always been, a man with fans. Even the campus security guards greeted him by name. Craig had a life, and I managed at least partially to slip into it. I got to know his teammates and their friends. One night, I went to a dinner with him off campus at the well-appointed home of one of the basketball team's boosters, where sitting at the dining room table, I was met by a confounding sight, a food item that, like so many other things at Princeton, required a lesson in gentility. A spiny green artichoke laid out on a white china plate. Craig had found himself a plum housing arrangement for the year living rent-free as a caretaker in an upstairs bedroom at the Third World Center, a poorly named but well-intentioned offshoot of the university with a mission to support students of color. It would be a full 20 years before the Third World Center was rechristened the Carl A. Fields Center for Equality and Cultural Understanding, named for Princeton's first African-American dean. The center was housed in a brick building on a corner lot on Prospect Avenue, whose prime blocks were dominated by the grand mansion-like stone and Tudor-style eating clubs that substituted for fraternities. The Third World Center, or TWC as most of us called it, quickly became a kind of home base for me. It hosted parties and co-op meals. There were volunteer tutors to help with homework and spaces just to hang out. I'd made a handful of instant friends during the summer program, and many of us gravitated toward the center during our free time. Among them was Suzanne Alelli. Suzanne was tall and thin with thick eyebrows and luxurious dark hair that fell in a shiny wave down her back. She had been born in Nigeria and raised in Kingston, Jamaica, 
though her family had moved to Maryland when she was a teenager. Perhaps as a result, she seemed unhooked from any single cultural identity. People were drawn to Suzanne. It was hard not to be. She had a wide open smile and a slight island lilt in her voice that became more pronounced anytime she was tired or a little drunk. She carried herself with what I think of as a Caribbean breeziness, a lightness of spirit that caused her to stand out among Princeton's studious masses. She was unafraid to plunge into parties where she didn't know a soul. Even though she was pre-med, she made a point of taking pottery and dance classes for the simple reason that they made her happy. Later, during our sophomore year, Suzanne would take another plunge, deciding to bicker at an eating club called Cap and Gown. Bicker being a verb with a meaning particular to Princeton, signifying the social vetting that goes on when clubs choose new members. I loved the stories Suzanne brought back from the eating club banquets and parties she went to, but I had no interest in bickering myself. I was happy with the community of black and Latino students I'd found through the TWC, content to remain at the margins of Princeton's larger social scene. Our group was small but tight. We threw parties and danced half the night. At meals, we often packed ten or more around a table, laid back and laughing. Our dinners could stretch into hours, not unlike the long communal meals my family used to have around the table at Southside's house. I imagine that the administrators at Princeton didn't love the fact that students of color largely stuck together. The hope was that all of us would mingle in heterogeneous harmony, deepening the quality of student life across the board. It's a worthy goal. I understand that when it comes to campus diversity, the ideal would be to achieve something resembling what's often shown on college brochures smiling students working and socializing in neat, ethnically blended groups. But even today, with white students continuing to outnumber students of color on college campuses, the burden of assimilation is put largely on the shoulders of minority students. In my experience, it's a lot to ask. At Princeton, I needed my black friends. We provided one another relief and support. So many of us arrived at college not even aware of what our disadvantages were. You learn only slowly that your new peers had been given SAT tutoring or college-caliber teaching in high school or had gone to boarding school and thus weren't grappling with the difficulties of being away from home for the first time. It was like stepping on stage at your first piano recital and realizing that you've never played anything but an instrument with broken keys. Your world shifts, but you're asked to adjust and overcome, to play your music the same as everyone else. This is doable, of course. Minority and underprivileged students rise to the challenge all the time, but it takes energy. It takes energy to be the only black person in a lecture hall or one of a few non-white people trying out for a play or joining an intramural team. It requires effort, an extra level of confidence to speak in those settings and own your presence in the room. Which is why, when my friends and I found one another at dinner each night, 
it was with some degree of relief. It's why we stayed a long time and laughed as much as we could. My two white roommates in Pine Hall were both perfectly nice, but I wasn't around the dorm enough to strike up any sort of deep friendship. I didn't, in fact, have many white friends at all. In retrospect, I realized it was my fault as much as anyone's. I was cautious. I stuck to what I knew. It's hard to put into words what sometimes you pick up in the ether, the quiet, cruel nuances of not belonging, the subtle cues that tell you to not risk anything, to find your people and just stay put. Kathy, one of my roommates, would surface in the news many years later, describing with embarrassment something I hadn't known when we lived together. Her mother, a schoolteacher from New Orleans, had been so appalled that her daughter had been assigned a black roommate that she'd badgered the university to separate us. Her mother also gave an interview confirming the story and providing more context. Having been raised in a home where the N-word was a part of the family lexicon, having had a grandfather who'd been a sheriff and used to brag about chasing black people out of his town, She'd been horrified, as she put it, by my proximity to her daughter. All I knew at the time is that midway through our freshman year, Kathy moved out of our triple and into a single room. I'm happy to say that I had no idea why. My financial aid package at Princeton required me to get a work-study job, and I ended up with a good one getting hired as an assistant to the director of the TWC. I helped out about 10 hours a week when I wasn't in class, sitting at a desk alongside Loretta, the full-time secretary, typing memos, answering the phones, and directing students who came in with questions about dropping a class or signing up for the food co-op. The office sat in the front corner of the building, with sun-flooded windows and mismatched furniture that made it more homey than institutional. I love the feeling of being there, of having office work to do. I love the little jolt of satisfaction I got any time I finished off some small organizational task. But more than anything, I loved my boss, Cerny Braswell. Cerny was a smart and beautiful black woman, barely 30 years old, a swift-moving and lively New Yorker who wore flared jeans and wedge sandals and seemed always to be having four or five ideas at once. For students of color at Princeton, she was like an uber-mentor, our ultra-hip and always-outspoken defender-in-chief, and for this, she was universally appreciated. In the office, she juggled multiple projects, lobbying the university administration to enact more inclusive policies for minorities, advocating for individual students and their needs, and spinning out new ideas for how all of us could improve our lot. She was often running late, blasting out the center's front door at a full sprint, clutching a sheaf of loose papers with a lit cigarette in her mouth and a purse draped over her shoulder, shouting directives to me and Loretta as she went. It was a heady experience being around her, as close up as I'd ever been to an independent woman with a job that thrilled her. She was also, not incidentally, a single mother raising a dear, precocious boy named Jonathan, whom I often babysat.
Cerny saw some sort of potential in me, though I was also clearly short on life experience. She treated me like an adult, asking for my thoughts, listening keenly as I described the various worries and administrative tangles students had brought in. She seemed determined to awaken more boldness in me. A good number of her questions began with, Have you ever? Had I ever, for example, read the work of James Cone? Had I ever questioned Princeton's investment in South Africa or whether more could be done to recruit minority students? Most of the time, the answer was no. But once she mentioned it, I became immediately interested. Have you ever been to New York, she asked at one point. The answer was again no. But Cerny soon rectified that. One Saturday morning, we piled into our car, me and young Jonathan, and another friend who also worked at the TWC, and rode along as Cerny drove full speed toward Manhattan, talking and smoking all the way. You could almost feel something lifting off her as we drove, an unspooling of tension as the white-fenced horse farms surrounding Princeton gave way to choked highways and finally the spires of the city rising in front of us. New York was home for Cerny, the same way Chicago was home for me. You don't really know how attached you are until you move away, until you've experienced what it means to be dislodged, a cork floating on the ocean of another place. Before I knew it, we were in the teeming heart of New York, locked into a flow of yellow taxis and blaring car horns as Cerny floored between stoplights, hitting her brakes at the absolute last second before a red light caught her short. I don't remember exactly what we did that day. I know we had pizza. We saw Rockefeller Center, drove through Central Park, and caught sight of the Statue of Liberty with her hopeful hoisted torch. But we were mainly there for practical reasons. Cerny seemed to be recharging her soul by running through a list of mundane errands. She had things to pick up, things to drop off. She double-parked on busy cross streets as she dashed in and out of buildings, provoking an avalanche of honking ire from other drivers, while the rest of us sat helplessly in the car. New York overwhelmed me. It was fast and noisy, a less patient place than Chicago. But Cerny was full of life there, unfazed by jaywalking pedestrians and the smell of urine and stacked garbage wafting from the curb. She was about to double park again when she sized up the traffic in her rear view and suddenly seemed to think better of it. Instead, she gestured to me in the passenger seat, indicating I should slide over and take her place behind the steering wheel. You have a license, right? she asked. When I answered with an affirmative nod, she said, Great, take the wheel. Just do a slow loop around the block, maybe two, then come back around. I'll be five minutes or less, I promise. I looked at her like she was nuts. She was nuts, in my opinion, for thinking I could drive in Manhattan. Me being just a teenager, a foreigner in this unruly city, inexperienced and fully incapable, as I saw it, of taking not just her car, but her young son for an uncertain, time-killing spin in the late afternoon traffic. But my hesitancy only triggered something in Cerny that I will forever associate with New Yorkers, 
an instinctive and immediate pushback against thinking small. She climbed out of the car, giving me no choice but to drive. Get over it and just live a little was her message. I was learning all the time now. I was learning in the obvious academic ways, holding my own in classes, doing most of my studying in a quiet room at the Third World Center or in a carol at the library. I was learning how to write efficiently, how to think critically. I'd inadvertently signed up for a 300-level theology class as a freshman and floundered my way through, ultimately salvaging my grade with an 11th-hour leave-it-all-on-the-field effort on the final paper. It wasn't pretty, but I found it encouraging in the end, proof that I could work my way out of just about any hole. Whatever deficits I might have arrived with coming from an inner-city high school, it seemed that I could make up for them by putting in extra time, asking for help when I needed it, and learning to pace myself and not procrastinate. Still, it was impossible to be a black kid at a mostly white school and not feel the shadow of affirmative action. You could almost read the scrutiny in the gaze of certain students, even some professors, as if they wanted to say, I know why you're here. These moments could be demoralizing, even if I'm sure I'm just imagining some of it. It planted a seed of doubt. Was I here merely as part of a social experiment? Slowly, though, I began to understand that there were many versions of quotas being filled at the school. As minorities, we were the most visible, but it became clear that special dispensations were made to admit all kinds of students whose grades or accomplishments might not measure up to the acknowledged standard. It was hardly a straight meritocracy. There were the athletes, for example. There were the legacy kids, whose fathers and grandfathers had been tigers, or whose families had funded the building of a dorm or a library. I also learned that being rich didn't protect you from failure. Around me, I saw students flaming out, white, black, privileged or not. Some were seduced by weeknight keg parties. Some were crushed by the stress of trying to live up to some scholarly ideal. And others were just plain lazy or so out of their element they needed to flee. My job, as I saw it, was to hold steady, earn the best grades I could, and get myself through. By sophomore year, when Suzanne and I moved into a double room together, I figured out how to better manage. I was more accustomed now to being one of a few students of color in a packed lecture hall. I tried not to feel intimidated when classroom conversation was dominated by male students, which it often was. Hearing them, I realized that they weren't at all smarter than the rest of us. They were simply emboldened, floating on an ancient tide of superiority, buoyed by the fact that history had never told them anything different. Some of my peers felt their otherness more acutely than I did. My friend Derek remembers white students refusing to yield the sidewalk when he walked in their path. Another girl we knew had six friends over to her dorm room one night to celebrate her birthday and promptly got hauled into the dean's office informed that her white roommate evidently hadn't felt comfortable with having big black guys in the room. There were so few of us minority kids at Princeton, I suppose, that our presence was always conspicuous. 
I mainly took this as a mandate to overperform, to do everything I possibly could to keep up with or even plow past the more privileged people around me. Just as it had been at Young, my intensity was spawned at least in part by my feeling of, I'll show you. If in high school I'd felt as if I were representing my neighborhood, now at Princeton I was representing my race. Anytime I found my voice in class or nailed an exam, I quietly hoped it helped make a larger point. Suzanne, I was learning, was not an overthinker. I nicknamed her Scruzy for the impractical, sidewinding course of her days. She based most of her decisions, who she'd date, what classes she took, primarily on how fun it was likely to be. And when things weren't fun, she quickly changed direction. While I joined the Organization for Black Unity and generally stuck close to the Third World Center, Suzanne ran track and managed the lightweight football team, enjoying the fact that it kept her close to cute athletic men. Through the eating club, she had friends who were white and wealthy, including a bona fide teenage movie star and a European student rumored to be a princess. Suzanne had felt some pressure from her parents to pursue medicine, though eventually gave up on it, finding that it messed with her joy. At some point, she was put on academic probation, but even that didn't seem to bother her much. She was the Laverne to my Shirley, the Ernie to my Bert. Our shared room resembled an ideological battlefield, with Suzanne presiding over a wrecked landscape of tossed clothing and strewn papers on her side, and me perched on my bed, surrounded by fastidious order. You really gotta do that, I'd say, watching Suzanne arrive back from track practice and head to the shower, stripping off her sweaty workout outfit and dropping it on the floor where it would live intermingled with clean clothes and unfinished school assignments for the next week. Do what, she'd say back, flashing her wholesome smile. I sometimes had to block out Suzanne's chaos so I could think straight. I sometimes wanted to yell at her, but I never did. Suzanne was who she was. She wasn't going to change. When it got to be too much, I'd scoop up her junk and pile it on her bed without comment. I see now that she provoked me in a good way, introducing me to the idea that not everyone needs to have their file folders labeled and alphabetized, or even to have files at all. Years later, I'd fall in love with a guy who, like Suzanne, stored his belongings in heaps and felt no compunction really ever to fold his clothes. But I was able to coexist with it, thanks to Suzanne. I am still coexisting with that guy to this day. This is what a control freak learns inside the compressed other world of college. Maybe above all else, there are simply other ways of being. Have you ever, Sony said to me one day, thought about starting a little after-school program for kids? She was asking out of compassion, I would guess. Over time, I'd grown so dedicated to Jonathan, who was now in elementary school, that a good number of my afternoons were spent wandering around Princeton with him as my sidekick, or at the Third World Center, the two of us playing duets on its poorly tuned piano or reading on a saggy couch. 
Cerny paid me for my time, but seemed to think it wasn't enough. I'm serious, she said. I know plenty of faculty members who are always looking for after-school care. You could run it out of the center. Just try it and see how it goes. With Cerny's word-of-mouth advertising, it wasn't long before I had a gaggle of three or four children to look after. These were the kids of black administrators and professors at Princeton, who themselves were a profound minority, and like the rest of us, tended to gravitate toward the TWC. Several afternoons a week, after public elementary school let out, I fed them healthy snacks and ran around with them on the lawn. If they had homework, we worked on it together. For me, the hours flew. Being around children had a wonderful, obliterative effect, wiping out school stress, forcing me out of my head and into the moment. As a girl, I'd passed whole days playing mommy to my dolls, pretending that I knew how to dress and feed them, brushing their hair and tenderly putting Band-Aids on their plastic knees. Now I was doing it for real, finding the whole undertaking a lot messier but no less gratifying than what I'd imagined. I'd go back to my dorm after a few hours with the kids, drained but happy. Once a week or so, if I found a quiet moment, I'd pick up the phone and dial the number for our apartment on Euclid. If my father was working early shifts, I could catch him in the late afternoon, sitting or so I imagined with his legs up in his reclining chair in our living room, watching TV, waiting for my mom to get home from work. In the evenings, it was usually my mother who picked up the phone. I narrated my college life in exacting detail to both my parents, like a homesteader dutifully providing dispatches from the frontier. I spilled every observation I had, from how I didn't like my French professor to the antics of the little kids in my after-school program to the fact that Suzanne and I had a dedicated mutual crush on an African-American engineering student with transfixing green eyes, who even though we doggedly shadowed his every move, seemed barely to know we were alive. My dad chuckled at my stories. Is that right, he'd say. And how about that? And maybe that engineer boy doesn't deserve either one of you girls. When I was done talking, he ran through the news from home, Dandy and Grandma had moved back to Dandy's hometown of Georgetown, South Carolina, and Grandma, he reported, was finding herself a bit lonely. He described how my mother was working overtime trying to care for Robbie, who was now in her 70s, widowed and struggling with an array of health issues. He never mentioned his own struggles, but I knew they were there. At one point when Craig had a home basketball game on a Saturday, My parents drove all the way to Princeton to see it, and I got my first look at their shifting reality, at what never got said on the phone. After pulling into the vast parking lot outside Jadwin Gym, my father reluctantly slid into a wheelchair and allowed my mother to push him inside. I almost didn't want to see what was happening to my father. I couldn't bear it. I'd done some research on multiple sclerosis in the Princeton Library, photocopying medical journal articles to send to my parents. I'd tried to insist that they call a specialist or sign Dad up for some physical therapy, but they, my dad primarily, didn't want to hear any of it. 
for all the hours we spent talking on the phone while I was at college. His health was the one topic he wouldn't touch. If I asked how he was feeling, the answer was always, I feel good. And that would be that. I let his voice be my comfort. It bore no trace of pain or self-pity, carrying only good humor and softness, and just the tiniest hint of jazz. I lived on it as if it were oxygen. It was sustaining, and it was always enough. Before hanging up, he always asked if I needed anything, money, for instance. But I never said yes. Seven. Home gradually began to feel more distant, almost like a place in my imagination. While I was in college, I kept up with a few of my high school friends, most especially Santita, who landed at Howard University in Washington, D.C. I went to visit her over a long weekend, and we laughed and had deep conversations, same as we always had. Howard's campus was urban. Girl, you still in the hood. I teased after a giant rat charged past us outside her dorm and its student population, twice the size of Princeton's, was almost entirely black. I envied Santita for the fact she was not isolated by her race. She didn't have to feel that everyday drain of being in a deep minority. But still, I was content returning to the emerald lawns and vaulted stone archways of Princeton, even if few people there could relate to my background. I was majoring in sociology, pulling good grades. I started dating a football player who was smart and spontaneous, who liked to have fun. Suzanne and I were now rooming with another friend, Angela Kennedy, a wiry, fast-talking kid from Washington, D.C. Angela had a quick, wacky wit and made a game of making us laugh. Despite being an urban black girl, she dressed like a preppy out of central casting, wearing saddle shoes and pink sweaters, and somehow managing to pull off the look. I was from one world, but now lived fully in another, one in which people fretted about their LSAT scores and their squash games. It was a tension that never quite went away. At school, when anyone asked where I was from, I answered, Chicago. And to make clear that I wasn't one of the kids who came from well-heeled northern suburbs like Evanston or Winnetka and stake some false claim on Chicago, I would add, with a touch of pride or maybe defiance, the South Side. I knew that if those words conjured anything at all, it was probably stereotyped images of a black ghetto. Given that gang battles and violence and housing projects were what most often showed up in the news. But again, I was trying, if only half-consciously, to represent the alternative. I belonged at Princeton as much as anybody, and I came from the south side of Chicago. It felt important to say out loud. For me, the south side was something entirely different from what got shown on TV. It was home. And home was our apartment on Euclid Avenue with its fading carpet and low ceilings. My dad kicked back in the bucket of his easy chair. 
It was our tiny yard with Robbie's blooming flowers and the stone bench where what seemed like eons ago, I'd kiss that boy Ronell. Home was my past, connected by gossamer threads to where I was now. We did have one blood relative in Princeton, Dandy's younger sister, who we knew as Aunt Sis. She was a simple, bright woman who lived in a simple, bright house on the edge of town. I don't know what brought Aunt Sis to Princeton originally, but she'd been there for a long time, doing domestic work for local families and never losing her Georgetown accent, which sits between a low country drawl and a gullah lilt. Like Dandy, Aunt Sis had been raised in Georgetown, which I remembered from a couple of summer visits we'd made with my parents when I was a kid. I remembered the thick heat of the place and the heavy green drape of Spanish moss on the live oaks, the cypress trees rising from the swamps, and the old men fishing on the muddy creeks. There were insects in Georgetown, alarming numbers of them, buzzing and whirring in the evening air like little helicopters. We stayed with my great-uncle Thomas during our visits, another sibling of Dandy's. He was a genial high school principal who'd take me over to his school, let me sit at his desk, who graciously bought me a tub of peanut butter when I turned my nose up at the enormous breakfast of bacon, biscuits, and yellow grits that Aunt Dot, his wife, served every morning. I both loved and hated being in the South, for the simple reason that it was so different from what I knew. On the roads outside town, we drive past the gateways to what were once slave plantations, though they were enough of a fact of life that nobody ever bothered to remark on them. Down a lonely dirt road deep in the woods, we ate venison in a falling-down country shack belonging to some more distant cousins. One of them took Craig out back and showed him how to shoot a gun. Late at night, back at Uncle Thomas's house, both of us had a hard time sleeping, given the deep silence, which was punctuated only by cicadas throbbing in the trees. The hum of those insects and the twisting limbs of the live oaks stayed with us long after we'd gone north again, beating in us almost like a second heart. Even as a kid, I understood innately that the South was knit into me, part of my heritage that was meaningful enough for my father to make return visits to see his people there. It was powerful enough that Dandy wanted to move back to Georgetown, even though as a young man he'd needed to escape it. When he did return, it wasn't to some idyllic little river cottage with a white fence and a tidy backyard, but rather, as I saw when Craig and I made a trip to visit, a bland cookie-cutter home near a teeming strip mall. The South wasn't paradise, but it meant something to us. There was a push and pull to our history, a deep familiarity that sat atop a deeper and uglier legacy. Many of the people I knew in Chicago, the kids I'd gone to Bryn Mawr with, many of my friends at Whitney Young, knew something similar, though it was not explicitly discussed. Kids simply went down south every summer, 
shipped out sometimes for the whole season to run around with their second cousins back in Georgia or Louisiana or Mississippi. It seems likely that they'd had grandparents or other relatives who joined the Great Migration North, just as Dandy had from South Carolina and Southside's mother had from Alabama. Somewhere in the background was another more than decent likelihood that they, like me, were descendants from slaves. The same was true for many of my friends at Princeton, but I was also coming to understand that there were other versions of being black in America. I was meeting kids from East Coast cities whose roots were Puerto Rican, Cuban, and Dominican. Cerny's relatives came from Haiti. One of my good friends, David Maynard, had been born into a wealthy Bahamian family. And there was Suzanne with her Nigerian birth certificate and her collection of beloved aunties in Jamaica. We were all different, our lineages half buried or maybe just half forgotten. We didn't talk about our ancestry. Why would we? We were young, focused only on the future, though of course we knew nothing of what lay ahead. Once or twice a year, Aunt Sis invited me and Craig to dinner at her house on the other side of Princeton. She piled our plates with succulent fatty ribs and steaming collard greens and passed around a basket with neatly cut squares of cornbread, which we slathered with butter. She refilled our glasses with impossibly sweet tea and urged us to go for seconds and then thirds. As I remember it, we never discussed anything of significance with Aunt Sis. It was an hour or so of polite, go-nowhere small talk, accompanied by a hot, hearty South Carolina meal, which we shoveled in appreciatively, tired as we were of dining hall food. I saw Aunt Sis simply as a mild-mannered, accommodating older lady, but she was giving us a gift we were still too young to recognize filling us up with a past, ours, hers, our fathers and grandfathers, without once needing to comment on it. We just ate, helped clean the dishes, and then walked our full bellies back to campus, thankful for the exercise. <laughs>